Let's uh, bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for the way that by grace it resonates in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that it may do so this morning as we look together at this portion of your word. Open our hearts to receive it, to understand it, and Lord, to obey it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Most active creatures, especially birds of various kinds, are not afraid of turkey vultures. The vultures are only looking for the weak and the dead, and that's what they are planning on feeding on. So they pose no real threat to the healthy or the energetic smaller bird or animal or rodent that might be about. You see the vultures circling lazily. You see them often uh, doing that uh, lazily in the sky as they eye some dying thing below. And they're waiting for the moment to descend and sort of clean up the mess. That's their job. Uh, they circle in, a, in great loops and they seem almost casual, I think, in their job as you watch them. And of course, they can afford to be. It's not like their meal is going to go anywhere. So they don't have to be in a hurry. They can take their time and circle around. But if you look carefully in a kettle of vultures, you might see mingled in among them, and yes, that's what groups of vultures are called, kettles. Probably has to do with their circling like that. I'm not sure. But you might see in there a figure that looks slightly different in shape, and it has a broad white stripe across the underside of its tail. And that bird is mimicking the vultures, but he's not one of them. The imposter is what's known as the zone-tailed hawk. And he's not looking for the weak or for the dead. He's looking for the living and the active. And what he is doing is he or she is hiding among the vultures with an eye for the unsuspecting, healthy, and active creature. That's their prey. And so they're looking for that one who's not looking for them because, after all, vultures are no threat. So you circle in there with them, and then the birds that see, oh, there's those vultures, they're not after me, I'm alive, they relax. And that's just what the hawk is waiting for. The zone-tailed hawk is just waiting for that bird to fly through that kettle of vultures, and then he descends on them. Once he spots his victim, he leaves the circling kettle like an arrow, and he shoots down with lightning speed and grabs his prey. The poor target has no time to realize that the hawk went out from the vultures because he or she was not of them. And that should sound familiar to you, because that's a part of 1 John chapter 2, where John says that there are those of the spirit of Antichrist who went out from us because they were not of us. 
Nevertheless, many mimic being a part of the body of Christ. Mimicry can be a a compliment when it's done with honor and with respect, or it can be used as a deceitful ploy to hide, either for the purposes of self-preservation or to maliciously do damage, like the zone-tailed hawk. Now, you as Christians, you're called on to practice a form of what we might call honorable mimicry. The spirit of this is found in the Gospel of John. And we read Jesus saying there in John chapter 10 and verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they do what? They follow me. They mimic me. Later, he said in John chapter 12, verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then Peter sort of sums all this up in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, where Peter says this, For to this you, believers, have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example, or leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So that's the honorable mimicry which the Christian is called to. We are to follow Christ. We are to walk as Christ walked. The ministry of Antichrist, however, is different. We find the second and sinister form of ministry in the spirit of Antichrist. Paul uh, says uh, to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this in verse 12, And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same team as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So you can kind of think about these men that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians are sort of there swirling around in the kettle of Christians, but they're not really. And their purpose is much different. They're false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They're disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. Now, this evil form of mimicry will culminate in the ultimate rise of the full deception that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, Paul talks about the coming of the lawless one. And he says that this is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Now, that's the culmination of this coming of Antichrist. But, beloved, it's important that we understand the spirit of this deceptiveness. 
the effort to bring it to, to fruition. The, the design and the malice of the Spirit has been lurking and has been mincing uh, about since the beginning and was fully active in the days of John just as it is now. The Spirit of Antichrist. Believers appropriately look forward to um, the great and triumphant day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we look forward to that time. But it's important that you not deceive yourself or kid yourself because not everyone else does. You're convinced of the coming of that day by faith and you're trying to determine the signs of the times because Christ said we should. The enemy, enemy beloved, is not doing that. And those who are of the enemies of God by nature don't believe that such a day is ever really coming. They never look out and say, oh, look, uh, here are the signs of the end for us. And now we really ought to be active, or now we really, really need to be doing what we need to do. They believe that any day, by power and might, they might win the battle. Now, what do you think when you read Psalm 2? Does it sound to you like a movement that believes that it has no hope because God is bound ultimately to triumph? When you read of them? Think of Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, or, or counsel, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, does that sound like a group who's saying, Because we know the end is coming, and when the end gets here, we'll, we'll be utterly defeated? That's not their spirit at all. Even the warning at the end of Psalm 2 doesn't come across as convincing them against the insanity of their rage. Remember the warning there. This is in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see a lot of leaders, world leaders, submitting themselves to the Lord and kissing the son and, and saying, boy, we know a day of judgment's coming and we're all going to be accountable to Christ and therefore we need to be really careful about what we say and do. You see that? Or do you see a world that says, if we keep trying, we can triumph. If we keep working at this, we can bring to fruition what we desire, what we design, what we hope for. What I'm trying to explain here is this, beloved, that the spirit of Antichrist isn't working on a timeline or a, a prophesied series of events to guide its actions and its hopes. So consequently, it's clawing away, trying to do all the damage that it can all the time, trying to deceive and distract as many as possible. And while it seems that the demons know the day of their judgment is coming, 
their dupes and their minions among men and women imagine that success against Christ and his word is always a possibility. They're always thinking, if we can just get this suppressed, then we can triumph. If we can just get people to stop thinking this way about Jesus and about salvation and about sin and about Christ coming again, we can just get people to stop thinking about that, then we can triumph. We can win this battle. That's the spirit by which they operate. They see it as a contest that's not settled and that they can actually, hopefully, burst his bonds and cast away his cords. They don't even see it so much, beloved, as a spiritual battle, but simply a contest of competing ideas or philosophies. We've got these people who believe this about Jesus, and then we've got all the rest of us who believe other things. All we who believe other things, all we have to do is stop getting, stop allowing them to believe what they believe, and then we'll triumph. We'll win the day. And underlying that is a maniacal hatred of God and man that is hell-bent on breaking up and destroying the church. The devil covers, uh, covets the worship. He covets the authority of Jesus Christ. And he is relentless in his opposition to all that pertains to him. And he will forgo no advantage. He will shy away from nothing daunting. And he will continue relentlessly in his opposition to all this holy until he is finally stopped by Christ himself. Jesus says of Satan in John chapter 8 and in verse 44, the second part of the verse, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, with that background and with those thoughts about the spirit of Antichrist and how it is constantly at work, we come to what John says here for us this morning in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And here John says this, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let's talk for a moment, first of all, about why he's writing. And we do that by beginning with the thought, it's to whom he writes. And it's all the anointed. Remember, John is writing to the beloved children of God. Some are older, experienced believers. Some are in the vigor of their spiritual youth. We've talked about that before. And some are still quite new and young in the faith. But all have an anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's the point he's making here. 
And that's what he declares in the 20th verse. If you look back there, you see him saying, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Now, those of the spirit of Antichrist, they deny Christ, the anointed one of God. But believers are anointed by God through and by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you who believe have knowledge. That's John's point. The Heidelberg Catechism explains this really well in question 32 in its answer. The question is, but why are you called a Christian? And the answer is this, because through faith I share in Christ and thus in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, offer myself as a living sacrifice of gratitude to him, and fight against sin and the devil with a free and good conscience throughout this life, and hereafter rule with him in eternity over all creatures. The point is here that the anointed know the truth. It's on the basis of this anointing that John then says this to all, all who are holy in Christ Jesus. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So what is he writing about? He's writing about this knowledge of the truth that you have because you are anointed in Christ. Some of you, uh, using other translations, may have the end of verse 20 translated in different ways. Um, It's translated differently in in different uh, translations. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things, is, is one of the ways it's translated. Now, obviously, John does not mean to say that the believer knows everything. That you know absolutely everything. That if I come to you and ask you to explain quantum physics, you can just deliver that out because you know everything. If I ask you to name the presidents in order and the dates of their uh, presidency, you can give me that, and, and it just comes out of you just naturally because you know everything. That's obviously not what John means here. Um, the whole context is in reference to the truth concerning Jesus Christ and your salvation. The gospel you know and believe is the truth concerning Jesus Christ. And you have put your faith in it by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. So you have you've put your faith in that truth because the Spirit has led you to that truth and to the understanding of it. No lie concerning these things gains any real traction in the heart of the believer because this truth reigns there by the Holy Spirit. If he or she relies on the Word of God and prays for understanding, 
the Spirit in the believer will make clear the truth. He works through the Word as a sort of lie detector. And through that Word, confirms to your heart the truth. The people of Berea, you remember, were commended by Paul as taking advantage of this reality. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, Luke says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word, says Luke, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So all Luke is saying here is that when Paul went there and preached, what these people did was, as believers, they, they brought out their truth detector, so to speak. And they compared what was being preached with the word, and the Spirit confirmed the truth of what was being preached in their hearts by the word. So you think about it this way. Two people of the cloth, as they used to call ministers, stand in front of you. And one of these people of the cloth says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And being born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, came in the flesh, suffered, and died on the cross for your sins, and rose the third day. The Holy Spirit affirms this message in the heart of the believer. The other stands up before you and says that Jesus was a, a son of God, was born to a young woman, certainly not a virgin because virgins can't bear children. We all know that. He died as an example of sacrificial living. And he died for, as an example of sacrificial living because there really is no sinfulness. The, the sinful thing is to be selfish. And this spirit of self-sacrifice rose from the grave and lives on now in the believer. How does the Holy Spirit deal with that message? He confirms that that's not true. He confirms that it's not the truth. And he identifies it as a lie that it's outside of and contrary to the word of God and is the teaching of Antichrist. And the Spirit confirms that in the heart of the believer. As soon as you hear those words, Jesus was a son of God, that's when, you know, little sounds would go off. Eh, <laughs> wait a minute, that's not right. He's the son of God. As soon as that uh, comes across, he was born of a young woman. Again, eh, wait a minute, that's not quite accurate. All those warnings go off in the mind. That's the, the witness of the spirit in you. And that's the witness that John is speaking of here. You know, you know the sound of the truth because you have this unction from the Lord because the Spirit is working in you. <coughs> Excuse me. These things concerning Christ and his work, believers know innately, John says. 
it carries the ring of truth. And this fortifies the believer against the one who lies. In other words, this knowledge of the truth is an active and useful thing. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, we read that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll know it. You'll you'll hear it. You'll understand it. You'll believe it. Because the Holy Spirit is witnessing to the truth of those things in the word to your heart. God the Holy Spirit is doing that. God the Holy Spirit is saying, this is my word. Hear it. This is my word. Believe it. Hendrickson points out in his commentary that about 20 years after John wrote this, his faithful student, Polycarp, was writing to the church at Philippi. And he said this, For everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is an antichrist. And whosoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whosoever perverts the oracles of the Lord for his own lusts and says that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, that man is the firstborn of Satan. Here Polycarp, John's student, has this truth detector in him. Men are preaching these things in his day, and he is able to identify them as false, as lies, as the spirit of Antichrist. The true Christian then, by the spirit and the word, not only knows the truth, but he or she also can discern the lie. And that's why John's writing to him. He's writing to you because you can discern the truth. You know what is a lie and you know what is true. And that brings us to what he's writing about. And so he adds in verse 22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So what he states now is that is a truth that he knows all true hearts will acknowledge. That anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, given for salvation, is a liar. That's his point. And you as believers, you recognize that. Anyone who stands up, doesn't matter what kind of gown they may have on or what sort of titles they may have, uh, what position they may have in the so-called church. It doesn't matter. If they deny Jesus is the Christ, they're a liar. It's that simple. As Calvin suggests, if that person isn't a liar, then who possibly could be one? If somebody stands up, and says, Jesus is not the Christ, if that person isn't a liar, who could be one if if they're not one? The gospel message, beloved, is so consistently present in the word of God. It is so carefully set forth and explained. 
so thoroughly attested to by events, and so effectually applied in the hearts of believers, that if you can't call the one who denies it a liar, then no one can be called a liar. It's, it's, there can't be liars if that person's not a liar. It's like, and John has already referred to this, it's like the one who says, I have no sin. This is back in 1 John chapter 1, and verses 8 and 10, John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we cannot sin, excuse me, we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. No sin. Come on. Most of us learned to sin before we could talk. Almost every parent has had that experience where you look down at your toddler who couldn't yet speak, and you ask them, did you do that? And they go, even though, you know, the chocolate's still on their face or the crayon's still in their hand or the print mark where they wrap their brother or sister is still on their hand, and you ask them, and they can't talk yet, but you ask them, did you do that? It wasn't me, is what they're saying. And they're lying before they can even talk. And these are the people who are going to say, I never sinned. I don't sin. I've never sinned. I can't sin. These are the people who are going to say that. They're liars. And if they aren't liars, who can be a liar? And that's the same thing John is applying here. If you take all the evidence and all their witnesses there is to who Christ was, who Jesus was, and what he came to do, and how he lived, and the testimony and witness to it, not only at the time, but before through prophecy and afterwards through the faith and the confidence of believers, if you take all of that evidence and you bring it together and you set it down and someone says, well, that's all fine, but Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the Christ. If that person is not a liar, who is, he's saying. The one who denies that Jesus is the anointed one of God is a blatant liar. The one that denies that he is the Christ. And when John is saying that, he's talking about with all that that entails. What was the purpose of the Christ? Why did the Christ come? To redeem sinners. And so it involves all of that, that that he lived and died for. And is rising again. That's all a part of it. The one that denies that he is the Christ. With all that that entails and means, John says, is a liar. And it's not just one who tells a lie. But it's one who is perpetrating deliberately and purposefully a lie. They are a true deceiver, a falsifier, as they're sometimes called. We now see that Christ is denied whenever those things which peculiarly belong to him are taken away from him. And as Christ is the end of the law and of the gospel and has in himself all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, so he is the mark at which all heretics level and direct their arrows, says Calvin. 
To deny it, beloved, is to disavow, to contradict, or to reject the truth regarding Jesus Christ. And note the boldness with which John speaks here. There is no uncertainty in this matter. Deny Jesus is the Christ and all that implies regarding him. His coming in the flesh, his suffering as your redeemer, his rising from the dead, and you are nothing but a liar, says John. And hopefully you can see here there's a difference between uh, the one who simply doesn't believe, as sad and dangerous as that is, and the one who enters the spirit of Antichrist. Because there is a difference. The one who becomes a purveyor of the lie that Jesus is not the Christ, not the appointed one that God has given for the remission of sins. It's one thing not to believe that. It's something else to perpetrate the lie that not only do you not believe it, but he is not and cannot be the Messiah. That one who perpetrates that lie, he is of the spirit of Antichrist. He is a veritable Antichrist, not just a denier of the truth, but the perpetrator of a lie. And notice, too, that you can't have one without the other. To deny the one is to deny the other. If you reject Christ as the only begotten Son of the Father and the promised Messiah, then you are rejecting the Father, too. They are so intimately tied together in nature and love and purpose that if you deny the one, you are denying the other. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He said that in John 10.30. You cannot claim to reverence and love the Father while rejecting the Son. Again, Jesus says, this is in John chapter 5 and verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So essentially, this truth is given even more carefully by John in verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You see, beloved, the person who disavows or rejects or contradicts and opposes the Son doesn't have either the Father or the Son. And the reason I'm emphasizing that so much is because there are those right now who claim to have some relationship with God the Father, quote-unquote, without the Son. They believe in God, they say, but they just don't believe all that stuff about Jesus and his coming and dying for sins. But they believe in God. They're spiritual, they claim. 
They're in connection with, quote, unquote, a higher power, the great spirit, or some other idea of God, but not through Jesus Christ. They teach and try to sell the idea that they are honorers of God, despite the fact that the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. They insist on their own initiative that there are actually many ways to God, that any old way will do. The Holy Spirit will never confirm that conclusion. But most of them don't even pretend such a thing, to be convinced of this by the Holy Spirit. Instead, they insist that their conclusions are ratified by nothing more unreliable than their own judgment. That's it. I'm not saying I'm convinced of this by the Spirit. I'm convinced of this because it's the way I feel about it. On the basis of the way I feel about it, I'm in touch with God, and I don't really need that Jesus stuff. That's the danger of self-deification. Because that's what you do when you take that position. You make yourself God. You're saying, it's not the witness of God to me. It's my determination of who God is. It's not the confirmation of the Holy Spirit in me that what I believe is true. It's the confirmation of my own feelings that what I believe is true. And therefore, my feelings are divine. John reveals the heart of the gospel, says Hendrickson. God the Father has sent his son Jesus Christ to redeem sinners. If a person rejects Jesus Christ, he also rejects God the Father and nullifies the message of the gospel of Christ. Such a person, writes John, is the Antichrist. And why do we say that? Why do we say that the, if you deny the Son, um, you can, uh, or if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father? Why do we go so far as, as to say that? Well, because of what we read in 1 John 4, verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God, the Father, was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God the Father, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you deny the relationship of the Son, you're denying the love of the Father. But the one who confesses the Son has the Father. That's the promise that we have here and what John refers to. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So let's just bring this down in what I hope are some practical ways. First of all, it's important that we realize what we're up against. 
when we are dealing with presenting the gospel to a dark and dying world, and we are contending for the truth in a world full of lies, it's important that we first of all understand that this is nothing new, that this is the ancient struggle. We're not engaged in our day in some sort of new contest between the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of Christ and the truth of his word. This has always been the nature of the Christian's fight. Secondly, it's important that we understand this is something insidious. This is not just a debate on cultural mores or philosophies. It's something much more than that. There is this constant clawing away at the truth by the enemy of the truth, who is trying to damage the church, who is trying to deceive men and women, who is trying to to pull down the kingdom of Christ. And it's a relentless effort. And it is something that can only be overcome by faith, our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And if we don't see the battle in that light, we'll never be properly prepared for it, and we'll never be fighting in the way that we need to fight. This is not a political battle. It is a spiritual battle. Does it have political implications? Certainly. But beyond that, we must understand that it is a spiritual battle. And that it is not a new battle, but an ancient battle. And it's one that continues to go on. And therefore, we must be diligent in our own time and strength to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Secondly, we have to call it what it is. The denial of Christ is a lie. And the ones who insist on it and teach it are liars. And it needs to be dealt with in that frank way. There is such a thing, beloved, as a deliberate deceiver. Not all men are, but there are those who are deliberate deceivers. And the importance of making a distinction between the deceived and the deceiver is something we cannot forget. Many of us, We have loved ones and friends who fall into the category of the deceived. When we consider them and we consider their plight, this is the way we need to view it. That they're deceived. And we need to know that, to be careful in our prayers for them and our hopes for them. If they're deceived by this spirit of Antichrist, There's no hope of securing them out of the grip of that and the power of that, but by the grace of God. And the more we realize that's true, and the more our hope of deliverance for those that we know and love is based on that truth, that it requires the grace and the mercy of God, the more we will be driven to our knees in faith praying that God would deliver them, that God would rescue them, that God would bring them out of this deception. 
And lastly, we want to consider the gospel's impact. What, what does that uh, catechism say again? I am anointed to confess his name. I am anointed to offer myself as a living sacrifice of gratitude to him and fight against sin and the devil with a free and good conscience throughout this life and hereafter rule with him in eternity over all creatures. I am anointed to be a living sacrifice. How do you make a sacrifice? How do you do that? Well, first by prayer, then by surrender, then by submission, and finally by service. That's how you do that. You pray for the acceptance of the sacrifice in Christ. You surrender yourself to the Lord and his word. You submit to it, you obey it, and then you serve him with it. Whether you're doing it at home, whether you're doing it in your relationship as husbands and wives, as children and parents, whether you're doing it as friends, whether you're doing it as family members on the broader scale, whether you're doing it at work, whether you're doing it here in the church, you pray, surrender, submit, and serve. Therefore, be imitators or mimickers of God, says Paul in Ephesians 5, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice of God. And then the second thing is, you fight against sin and the devil, resting in and relying on Christ while resisting the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James says. That's how we conduct ourselves in this battle, in this fight. And that's how we contend for the truth. And that's how we fight against the spirit of Antichrist, which is a lie. Christ is the Redeemer. He's redeemed you. And as the redeemed, you live for him. You understand what the truth is because that truth is communicated to you by the word and affirmed to you by the spirit in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to make us men and women of the truth. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain us in our battle against the spirit of Antichrist. We know, Lord, that every generation of believers has had to do that. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in it for Christ's sake. Lord, if there's anyone here who is in the grip of that spirit, we pray that even now, Lord, they would see the, the sinfulness of that and turn from it. If there are any who are being deceived by that spirit, that they would see that's a lie, that you would confirm the truth of the gospel in their hearts by your spirit. Have mercy on them, Lord, and bring them to yourself. Heal them, Lord. Restore them. Save them. Lord, may you be glorified in their lives and the lives of all who believe. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.